Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. She's afraid of me, you, him, all of us. Farmers. Their families told them we'd rape them. Welcome back to The Tragedy of Cinema, Episode 7. And as you heard in the trailer, we'll be talking about the original Magnificent Seven. The I'm, Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent I'm your host, Jimbo, along with my co-host... Terrence. Terrence. And by the way, Terrence, happy belated birthday. Terrence just had a birthday. Why, thank you. How old are you now? I'm 29. 29. I remember that. So, Terrence, we've lost a lot of uh, actors, actresses recently. I thought we'd hit a couple of them. Uh, the ones that really hit me hard, the first one obviously was Chewbacca, Peter Mayhew. Oh, yeah. Always been a, a fan of his since I was a kid. Um, we also lost Doris Day, and uh, just yesterday we lost Tim Conley. And there's a couple of others that I didn't write down, but we wish their families, you know, uh, the best at this difficult time. So uh, we wanted to give our shout-outs to them, make sure, you know, we don't forget, take their careers and everything for granted. 
So, Terrence, are you ready for the question of the episode? The question of the episode. Let's do it. As you know, we're talking about the Magnificent Seven today. Yep. But also, The Three Amigos was kind of a spoof on this movie. Did you ever see The Three Amigos? Of course I saw The Three Amigos. Okay, no, good. I didn't know it was a spoof of the movie. Well, it will. it's down here in my notes later. But gotcha. not necessarily a spoof, but a comedy version of it, I yeah, guess. Uh, yeah, a parody, if you will. So, Terrence, my question for you today is... If the three amigos was remade, who would you cast today as the three amigos? Ooh, that's rough. Because it's rough because you look at the type of comedians they were, and the today comedians are are different. I mean, every age has their own type of comedian, um, so you don't get a lot of slapstick, you know, in today's age. So it's really difficult to think who I would put in those roles well and also today um a lot of movies are shall we say politically correct where uh, or diverse that's true so i'll tell you who i went with um i went with adam sandler okay i can see that will ferrell okay and i put keenan thompson in there do you know who keenan thompson is yeah i do so i feel like it's um you could probably easily go with will ferrell and uh uh riley uh, what's, what's his last name or first name? The guy he's always paired right, with. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, those two together could probably fit in and easily like fill in a third. Um, easily fill in? Then who's your third? I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it like, sounded good coming out of your mouth, but now that you like, easily. Let's, see, let, let's, let's go with those two. And I'm just trying to think of uh, comedians. I mean, are you going to put like Chris Rock in there? I was also thinking, you know who would be funny in it is uh, – the the comp, the Mexican uh, comedian the uh, fluffy guy uh, oh Gabriel, yeah uh, yeah I think he would be funny in it he would be funny in that that's a, you know what I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that one <laughs> he, and it would be interesting to see how he would be on screen because I mean obviously he, he's, he's a stand up right. comic but uh, has he been in any movies not that I know of I would like to see him on screen I wonder I if he too. has the the potential to do that I mean he's he's a hilarious guy <laughs> <laughs> so um, with, with that being said, we are. Uh, I put Terrence on the spot all the time, but I know some of you like that, and you guys play along with us. So there's that question for this week. So Terrence, today we're talking about the Magnificent Seven. This is going to be a longer longer episode than normal. Um, we will be doing some things a little bit different. Um, I did uh, highlight one of the actors for this movie and gave a little bit of detail about his life, his biography, if you will. Um, and I also have a movie trivia for today. Oh, awesome. So are you ready for this? I'm going to see if you can get this answer. What actor was known as Singing Sandy early in his career? Ooh, no idea. No idea? <laughs> well, since this is a Western, we're talking about none other than John Wayne. Oh, Really? Really? Huh. So I thought that was interesting. You know, you always see him as a big, rough, and tough cowboy, and then yeah. he was known as Singing Sandy. So that is really here's, a, here's a little um, fun fact about John Wayne. He is an honorary CB. Uh, for those who don't know, U.S. Navy CBs are a construction battalion that work within the United States Navy. Well, and so, yeah, he, he was dubbed an honorary CB for the movie he was in, The Fighting Seabees. My grandpa loved John Wayne. And I remember one day I was over there, and he had John Wayne on TV, and uh, he he said, "Well, do you like John Wayne?" I was like, eh, "I don't really like him." And he went, "Whoa!" <laughs> like like <laughs> I said the wrong thing. So uh, yeah, so that's a little. We're gonna try to throw in a little fun fact or trivia uh, once an episode. So Terrence, that Magnificent Seven. When's the last time you watched this? It's been a while. Right. Um, I probably watch what it's based off of, which we'll get into later, a lot more than I have watched its remakes. I do like watching the remakes, uh, and this is surprisingly a remake, uh, which probably a lot of people don't know, but it's a good remake, in my opinion. Um, and so uh, with that being said, what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into all the facts about the mani- that Magnificent Seven so, its release date was October 12, 1960. It was directed by John Sturgis. Uh, it was written by William Roberts. The budget was 2000 No, I'm sorry. $2 yeah, $2 million. Uh, in today's money, that's $17 million. 
Uh, it grossed in the U.S. just a little shy of $5 million, so $4 million, 9000 and then in today's money, we're looking at about $42 million. Uh, so it only doubled, uh, which is not very good as, as far as when you're looking at box office numbers. Right, but um, as you'll see later, I couldn't find it, but it said uh, internationally it was a hit. Yeah. Uh, it made a lot more money, but I couldn't find the actual numbers of what it grossed. So Yeah, sometimes numbers are really hard to find. Uh, it's runtime, uh, two hours and eight minutes. So this is one of the longer, older movies. Uh, and then so from there, we're going to jump into the uh, technological aspects of the movie. So it's sound mix with mono. Uh, we're looking at Westrex recording system. Uh, it was filmed in color. Uh, the aspect ratio is 2.35 by 1. Uh, there's a camera using Panavision lenses. Uh, and the lens in particular was anamorphic, uh, which I will get into as soon as I get all the other stuff done. <laughs> so um, it's Laboratory Deluxe Highwood, Hollywood. Hollywood. <laughs> it was Deluxe Hollywood. You can tell he's a little sleep deprived. He just got off work. So. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely like just chugging along on fumes. Um, it's film reel. We're looking at 14 reels. Uh, it was negative format, 35 millimeter, Eastern uh, Eastman color negative film, uh, 50T type 5250. Uh, cinema process was Panavision anamorphic. And so what anamorphic uh, is and as far as the lenses goes and uh, the actual process is the lens contains a cylindrical optical element that compresses or squeezes if you will uh, the image horizontally which allows a widescreen image to be photographed into a standard 35 millimeter film frame uh, they were also super small they were they were, they were very small uh, and lightweight, which made them ideal for handheld cameras and steady cam work. So, uh, if you're using a lot of moving shots, uh, these lenses were good to go for that. And so, that basically ends the technological aspects, moving on to the awards of the Magnificent Seven. So, the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards in 1961, they were nominated for uh, during the Oscars for best music, scoring, and or uh, dramatic or comedy picture. Uh, and the, I believe it was the composer of the music, which was uh, Elmer Bernstein. And then uh, the next award, we're looking at the Golden Globes USA 1961. Another nomination, uh, Golden Globe Most Promising Newcomer Male, that's from Robert Vaughn. And the International Film Music Critic Award, so once again, we're seeing how great the music score is. Uh, they were nominated uh, for the FMCJ Award, uh, that's Best Pre-Release of a Previously Existing Score, once again, Elmer Bernstein. Um, then the Laura Awards, which I'm actually not familiar with those awards. Uh, that's in 1961. They were nominated uh, for Golden Laurel for Top Action Drama, Top Action Performance uh, by, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Yule Brenner, and then fifth place Top Musical store, s Score, uh, once again, Amar Bernstein, uh, was fourth place. Uh, National Film Preservation Board, in 2013, so it won an award years later. Yeah, just uh, six years ago. Exactly. Um, they actually won uh, the National Film Registry. And that's pretty cool. So uh, with that being said, we're going to jump right into the synopsis. And uh, this is a very simplistic synopsis. I was going to say, it's not complex. Like <laughs> it's not complex at all, but I think sometimes simple is effective. And in this case, it was. It's a very simple premise, um, and as you'll see from the synopsis. So the synopsis reads... A small village in Mexico enlists the help of seven gunslingers to help their village against a group of evil outlaws led by the Calvera. Right. So um, now we're going to jump into the main cast and some of these names as I go through this, um, because some of them are uh, Russian and we'll be talking about um, if people didn't know that this movie was a remake of the Seven Samurai uh, which is Terrence is one of his favorites. But oh, so I'm yeah. going to be butchering some of those names as I go through some of these notes. So forgive me now. And Terrence may have to help me since he did live in Japan for a short stint <laughs> and Iceland and some other places. So the main cast, you had Yul Brenner. He played Chris Larrabee Adams. Eli Wallach played Calvera. Steve McQueen played Vin Tanner. 
Horst Bolcholtz played Chico. Charles Bronson played Bernardo O'Reilly. Robert Vaughn played Lee. Brad Dexter played Harry Luck. James Coburn played Britt. And Jorge Martinez de Hoyos, he played Hilario as George Martinez de Hoyos. So as you can tell, it has a star-studded cast. I mean, a lot of these people went on to have different movies. Like Charles Bronson was in Death Wish. Steve McQueen, you know, went on The Great Escape and some other ones. Yul Brenner, The King and I. Um, some big action oh, action stars. Right. So um, what I'd like to do now is this is the first time we've done this is we're actually going to highlight an actor and give some details about his life. So you'll see some of his background, maybe how he portrayed his character and stuff. So we're going to – I have chose uh, Yul Brenner for our first actor spotlight. Let's hear it. His birth name was Yuli Borosovich Brenner. And he, he changed his name when he was in acting because his last name was uh, original B-R-Y-N-E-R. It is uh, When he went to acting or on the screen, it was B-R-Y-N-N-E-R. His date of birth and date of death, he was born July 11, 1920 in Russia, and he died October 10, 1985 in New York of lung cancer. He was married four times, and he had four children, two of whom were adopted. Um, the awards, he, Academy Award in 1957 for Best Actor in the Lead Role for The King and I. Oh, okay. So I thought we'd highlight the different awards if they won them in a different movie. Yeah. You know I, mean? uh, I remember The King and I. That was a good so, movie. So a little bit about his early life. He played guitar in uh, guitar. He played guitar <laughs> in nightclubs among the Russian gypsies. He also worked as a trapeze artist for Cirque de Javier Company. He debuted in 1941 as Fabian in The Twelfth Night. He performed on Broadway in Lute Song with Mary Martin. He and his wife Virginia Gilmore, also an actress, starred in the first TV talk show Mr. and Mrs. Oh wow! Yeah, I did not know that. I mean, not only is he very talented, but to be in, like, He's, the start of something that kicks off a, right. a particular genre. His most notable roles in the movies are The Magnificent Seven, The King and I, and in The Ten Commandments as Ramses. When he was cast opposite of Charleston Heston in The Ten Commandments, and that he would be shirtless most of the time, he went on a rigorous weight training program so he was not overshadowed by Heston. So it seems about like the, we'll see a lot of uh, some some. some st- uh, on set rivalries. Oh, this movie had a ton. <laughs> uh, he was a great photographer. He often took pictures of many of the sets that he worked on. And guess, you'll like this one. He always prepared his breakfast while wearing a silk Camino. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, here's You're really going to love this one. Stan Lee of Marvel Comics used him as the inspiration for Professor, for professor Charles Xavier X-Men fame for the comics. That is... Because of his bald head. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. I did not know that, and I'm glad I do. <laughs> See, that's why I thought we'd highlight the actor, you know what I mean? Um, on February 8th, 1960, he was awarded a star on the Walk of Fame and can be visited at 6162 Hollywood Boulevard. He died on the same day as his co-star Orson Welles, or Welles from the movie The Battle of Nervetta. Hmm. Diagnosed with lung cancer in the mid-80s, during this time, he filmed a public service announcement blaming smoking as the cause to be ran after his death. This video can be found on YouTube and is a must-watch. Um, also, um, if I can, I will put this at the end of the podcast in case you would like to hear it. If you don't want to hear it, then you can skip it. But I think it's something I can pull up and just add it, the, vid- the audio to the end of this. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. Um, and I think he would want that. He 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 obviously did it posthumous, or you know, after he died, he wanted to come out with it and warn people. You know what? I yeah, mean? exactly. It was kind of one of his uh, mission passing wills, if you will. Right. You know? He was cremated and his ashes were buried in a remote part of France on the grounds of Abbey of St. Michael de Bois Aubry. Known for his shaved head and his deep voice, he remains one of the most fascinating, unusual, and beloved movie stars of his time. And <laughs> he was a man of quotes, so I wrote down three of his quotes. So his famous quotes are, I'm not of the can-kicking, shovel-carrying, ear-scratching, torn t-shirt school of acting, there are very few real men in the movies these days, yet being a real man is the most important quality an actor can offer on the screen. Huh. So I guess even then they were going like, oh, those darn snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> Another one was, uh, people don't know my real self, and they're not about to find out. <laughs> but this one right here, I can't, I, I can't believe we didn't get a lot of backlash for this next one. Girls have an unfair advantage over boys. If they can't get what they want by being smart, they can get it by being dumb. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I mean, that's okay. So, a quick little segue. It, it, it's funny, but it's it, in a way it, it, it's true. Um, I was on a project site a long time ago, and uh, there was we kind of have those jobs that are done for the people who aren't so much doing other things up to par. And so uh, there's a bunch of like dried up concrete and like extra you know concrete that we had. And so. Um, uh, one one of the workers was she was tasked to do that, and uh, me and another guy were going to get like burgers because we were gonna have you know, a barbecue for everybody. And then uh, uh, she was like pretending to be meek and stuff. And she's got other guys like this uh, to help her do work and stuff. So she comes up to me, and she's like, "Oh, can can you please like you, uh, take over for me and I'll do this?" And I'm like, uh, "No." <laughs> I'm yeah. immune to your charms. So um, that's the uh, the biography or actor spotlight. So Terrence, is that something you think we should keep in the podcast from now on? Was oh as, um, uh, as far as highlighting one of the actors, from I the- would say uh, feel free to you know email, leave a comment, and let us know what you think. If you'd like to hear more, uh, we're just gonna go ahead and keep doing that. Um, and if you like it, then definitely let us know. If not, let us know. And uh, but I, th- I think it also shows the. Um, diversity of the actor um by other roles that he may have played that you may have seen seen the movie but you didn't know it was that actor exactly yeah so without uh, looking on imdb (laughs) exactly get to hear it the fun way (laughs) or wikipedia (laughs) so terrence are you ready to dive into some unknown facts and trivia let's get into the facts we have a lot so (laughs) So, many oh yeah like seven pages Director John Sturgis got mixed reviews about the film, but he did he did not care. He, he did get one that he only cared about. Akira Kurosawa was so impressed that he sent him a ceremonial sword as a gift. That's the only like opinion you need. So uh, basically, Magnificent Seven is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, set in the Western. Uh, exactly. So he made a, a basically a Western spin on the Seven Samurai. Uh, I, as J- Jimbo stated before, I'm a huge fan of the original, uh, the cinematography, and that the atmosphere, just everything. Uh, no, no screen space is wasted at all. Uh, everything has a purpose, and it's just a wonderful movie. It's a great simple story, uh, but it hits hard. And the retelling of The Magnificent Seven, um, this is also a really good movie. So the fact that he liked it so much, he was impressed and sent him a sword. If if I was in his shoes, that would be all I needed. (laughs) You would have been ecstatic. I don't care care what what anyone else says. I have the approval from the person who inspired me to make the movie. Exactly. And I knew you would get a kick. That's why I put it up. That's amazing. Terrence is going to love this. Yul Brynner had a major say in casting decisions. He really wanted Steve McQueen cast as Vin Tanner, but regretted it later because they developed a disastrous relationship on the set of this film, which we'll talk about a lot of the pettiness that went on. They uh, reconciled years later when McQueen was dying of cancer. And I think that's that's a shame that two actors hold a grudge so long, and then most of the time you see them make up later in life, right before one of them's about to die. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's yeah. probably over something petty. You know what I mean? That shouldn't even really matter but you yeah. see that not just in movies that's just with people in general yeah you know people life's, life's life. too short mm-hmm. you know I mean, life's too short to hold grudges you know get that taken care of the group of bandits for this movie adopted Eli Wallach who played Calvera the bad guy yeah every morning before shooting but after he was in costume they would go riding for one hour also they would check his horse tack and prop gun before he was allowed to use either <laughs> so the, so um this film uh, was filmed mostly in Mexico, yeah. and the Mexican censorship had a lot to say. We'll, we'll talk about some more of it here in a minute, but of what they could and couldn't do. So okay. it's going to yeah. be really interesting. James Coburn was a huge fan of The Seven Samurai, and he ended up getting the role for his favorite part. He intentionally incorporated, I'm going to butcher this, C.J. Mayaguchi's performance as Cayuzo into his performance for this film. Yeah, no, you did. You did good. Well, Nice. Brenner was so worried about McQueen trying to steal the spotlight from him that he actually hired an assistant to count the number of times that McQueen would touch his hat while he was speaking. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Steve McQueen was not just this movie, but I've heard from several of his movies, and he was always trying to take the spotlight away from other people because he liked all the glory. 
So yeah, kind of like it's mine and mine alone. Right. Well, yeah. Why are they paying attention to him when I'm yeah. in this movie? Uh, composer John Williams. You know John Williams, a oh, Star of Wars course, fan. Yeah. You know, was a member of the orchestra that recorded Elmer Elmer Bernstein's score. He was playing the piano. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Usually he's the one directing. I know, so. right? Yul Brenner was about a half inch taller than Steve McQueen. Yul wanted to appear to be towering over him so he would make a small mound of dirt and stand on it when filming the scenes. McQueen, every chance he could, would kick at the pile of dirt. It's so great. <laughs> so you just see the pettiness, you know, <laughs> just the pettiness. It was actually Yul Brenner who had the idea of doing a Western adaptation of The Seven Samurai. Okay, that's pretty cool. And, you know, him being over uh, born in Russia, I didn't know if that had a major effect on him since it's closer to japan you know i mean i didn't know or china yeah um i I guess it i don't know sort of the their especially in the time their exposure to media and what sort of media well you didn't have social media so there's no way you can just go on twitter or facebook you know uh because you know as far as uh international movies goes uh for example you know uh, for the longest time uh now, now we get you know movies from everywhere, but the the main movies we would get um, would be like Chinese kung fu movies. Those those were big, you know. You mean in Japan? Um, over there? Or? No, no, no. I'm saying here. In oh, the in states. here. Oh, okay. Uh, so like that would be our international market. So I don't right. know what what uh, you know Russia's international market was. I don't know if he was a movie connoisseur who would go out of his way to watch, uh, you know, just out there movies. But you, uh, you, you or if it's something that was like you know. Hey, here's a movie from Japan. Let's screen this. But but not only that, but you got to remember this movie was shot in 1960. Yeah. So if he's he's lobbying for this movie that they should remake it, there was no VHS, there was no DVD, so he would have had to have seen it at a theater somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, outside the box here because none of that other stuff was invented yet. So he had to have seen it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The entire cast was so caught up in the McKean-Briner squabble that the other cast members started pulling their own stunts to get more screen attention in the movie. So not just the two main actors. You know, now you're dragging in even the lesser actors trying to one-up each other. That's great. John Sturgis did not know how he lost the control of the cast so fast. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine trying to make... I bet this trying to direct this movie was terrible. I mean, you know, so, just it sounds the, like trying to get a hold of a ratty crack classroom. Just right. <laughs> So here we, here we go. We're going to start talking about that Mexican censorship. Uh, Mexican censors required that clean clothes always be presented for the Mexican villagers, even though they were farmers in the film. This delayed filming to make sure that the costumes and clothes were clean. I mean, that's understandable. you got to think mean, you, in, like, other Western movies, uh, Hispanics in general didn't always get a good outlook. It was always this sort of caricature kind of character uh, that wasn't very portrayed well. Uh, so I can see why they were like, hey, we want us to be represented right. in a but, different light in this movie. But, you know, but you see them, you know, out in the field or whatever, you know, they're farmers. You yeah, expect no. a little... <laughs> exactly, A little exactly. rubble, you know. Uh, it, does, it does kind of take you out of that scene. Uh, because the, if that, you see them on... Scene, yeah. When you watch it again, you see them, they're just like in spick and span white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, wow. <laughs> uh, McQueen tried to steal the spotlight by taking off his hat to shield his eyes as they are driving the hearse towards the cemetery. And Yul Brynner noticed his reply, if you don't stop that... I'm going to take off my hat, and then no one will look at you for the rest of the film. Oh, <laughs> because man. he was bald, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the petty. <laughs> I mean, this goes on the entire time they are doing this. Pay attention to Eli Wallach's character when he goes to ho- hoister his gun. He wasn't used to drawing his gun, so he made sure to look down every time, and he didn't want to look foolish by missing it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, as it, When I was a kid, uh, I was huge into westerns, and I remember I had a toy, uh, a toy revolver. That I would practice doing like crazy stuff like that, like just just unholstering, like you know, doing dumb but, tricks and like, you, and then holstering it without looking at the the holster, which I was able to do. But did but was one of those cap guns that you could squeeze? And pop. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah it it the had the, the red strip right. that had little uh, the little bit of and the uh, smell of uh, that yep. after you fired it was amazing. Uh, this was really interesting too. The horse that Yul Brenner is riding is named Pie and is the same horse that James Stewart rode in all or most of his westerns. Oh, wow. So okay. You t- remember we talked about Toto being in, I think, 16 different movies or yeah. 14. Now, this horse has probably been in a lot of movies, so maybe he was easy to train. That's why. Yeah, he's probably a very um, uh, uh, obedient horse. Right. 
John Sturgis's next film, The Great Escape, which we will be covering in a future episode because it's one of my absolute favorites, starred Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, and James Coburn from this movie. Steve McQueen wanted to land the role in this film, but the TV series he was shooting, Wanting Dead or Alive, wouldn't allow it. Oh, wow. Okay. So what did McQueen do? He crashed a car, and while he was out, uh, uh, quotation marks, out sick, he shot this film. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, back then they... Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, even now, you, you, if, you, if you get roped into uh, sort of a, you know, a contract of either a movie or a TV show, it's really hard to... Um, outsource yourself even if you have the time uh, to any other sort of uh, uh, entertainment, you know, because um, they can maybe need you on a moment's notice or something like that. So there's a lot of little tricks that, that actors and actresses do to try to maximize their time if they want to be in multiple roles. Well, my, my two questions about this would be, number one, you didn't have social media back then. So people that were probably checking up on you, it would take longer for them to get a hold of you, you know, if you were out sick. Yeah. Um, and the other one is, I wonder if there was any repercussions from the t- the TV show once they found out that he made this movie while he was sick. Did he have to owe him anything, any money or anything? Who knows? That's, that's an interesting question, though. That is a question. I might have to look into that. Uh, Chico's, Chico's bullfight scene was improvised. Someone found a cow and put it in the scene with horse bullshots. Bull... Bush holds to see what he would do about it. So he just ran with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yul Brenner was the only one to reprise his role in Return of the Magnificent Seven in 1966. Hmm. I didn't even know there's a sequel. There's like four of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, James Coburn Britt and Robert Vaughn Lee have only 11 and 16 lines in the entire film, respectively. Although they were close friends for almost 50 years, this is their only film together. Wow. It's interesting when... Um there's a character in a film, and then you realize how little lines they have. Uh, like and sometimes a, really popular characters. Well, it was like uh, when we talked about The Breakfast Club, the, uh, yeah. the golf What's girl, face? Uh, Allison. She only had a handful right. of lines. Or, I mean, you look at one of Star Wars' most popular characters, Boba Fett. The dude has, like, not that many <laughs> no. lines at all. Yeah, and I think he has two in the entire <laughs> yeah, exactly. trilogy. Uh, Yul Brenner was married on the set. The celebration used uh, many of the same props as the fiesta scene. That's awesome. The film was cast quickly to beat an actor strike. The only chance of getting this movie made was to assemble the main cast before the strike began. So there was a furious rush to get seven actors together. The cast was just barely assembled in time. Oh wow! Yeah, that's um, that actually happens more than you think. It happens a lot every time uh, they get you know wind of a strike. It's like okay, we got to hurry up. And, you know, finish this before the strike happens. Right. Yeah. Horst Buschholz, Chico, accidentally shot himself in the leg on set. Though his gun was loaded with blanks, the shot raised a welt. Oh, wow. Elmer Bernstein, whose score for this film is one of the best known ever composed, um, also wrote the score for the parody of this film, The Three Amigos, in 1986. <laughs> so that's pretty cool that they kept the same. Yeah, the, uh, the, the same composer. That's great. This film was a box office failure in the United States, but went on to be a smash hit in Europe and ultimately turned a profit. Filming took place in Mexico at a time when the country did not take kindly to Hollywood productions due to the controversy surrounding Veracruz in 1954. It was agreed that they could shoot there as long as Mexican censors were allowed on set to dictate what could and couldn't be shown so as to avoid another disaster. Hmm. Now, I'm not not familiar with the uh, Veracruz... Incident, I guess you could say. Right. I'm not really sure either. I was going to look it up, but, you know, yeah. it was crunched with a lot of information. So maybe in our bonus episode, yeah. write that down. We'll, uh, we'll look yeah, that definitely. up. Yeah, uh, definitely. In the original script, the seven gunfighters were much older and veterans of the Civil War. Spencer Tracy was also suggested for the role of Chris, which ultimately went to Gil Brenner. Okay, yeah. Robert Vaughn, who played Lee was the last surviving member of the Magnificent Seven. Vaughn died on November 11, 2016, at the age of 83. Oh, here you go. George Peppard. You know who that is? Or Peppard. You know who George Peppard is? Who's George Peppard? We're getting ready ready to tell you. (laughs) Was first considered for the role of Vin. Gene Wilder also auditioned. Peppard would later star in the remake Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980, and Wilder would play delusion gunslinger in Mel Brooks' western satire Blazing Saddles. George Peppard (laughs) played... Hannibal in the 18. Oh, okay. All the right. original 18, not the yeah, remake yeah, of no, the movie. Yeah, of course. 
the theme song was used for many years for the Marlboro cigarette commercials. Huh. And talk about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Chico is a combination of two characters from Seven Samurai in 1954, Katsushiro and Kikuchio. Kikuchio. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, many U.S. ship, U.S. Navy ships. I, th- I put this in there because you know you yeah. Navy. Uh, many U.S. Navy ships adopt a theme song based on their name or hull number. The song would be played when leaving port or when completing an underway replenishment. The guided missile destroyer USS Henry B. Wilson (DDG-7) adopted this movie's theme. In addition, she had a blue and gold flag that would be broken at the truck when playing the theme song. The flag said "Magnificent Seven. Huh. That's pretty awesome. I did not know that. That's a cool little little Navy trivia I didn't know about. <laughs> McQueen complained about the gun. Here we go with the pettiness again. Back to the pettiness. Mc- yeah, McQueen complained about the gun and horse Yul Brenner was using the film. The gun had an ivory grip and that his horse was the biggest. Actually, my horse is the biggest, Vaughn said. McQueen replied, it's not yours I'm worried about. It's Brenner's horse I'm worried about. <laughs> so it wasn't that he... He was just, you know, the the gun had an ivory hill, so yeah. it, it made it look fancy, you know what I mean? But, and the horse, it was just, I guess they just didn't like each other, you know, they were trying yeah. to one-up each other. Uh, Walter Bernstein did the original adaptation of Akira Kurosawa's film Seven Samurai in 1954, but it wasn't used. Walter Newman wrote the screenplay that is substantially what you see on screen. Anthony Quinn was originally set to star in this movie. When newspapers started reporting on the altercations on set between Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, Brenner issued a press statement declaring, I never feud with actors. I feud with studios. <laughs> so he's not even acknowledging McQueen. Wow. So here he is. He's just taking little jabs. You know what I mean? Uh, Stephen King used the premise of this film as the basis for his fifth Dark Tower novel, Wolves of the Kala. The unfortunate town is called Kala Bryn Sturgis after the film's director, John Sturgis. I need to read those books, The, <laughs> the Dark Tower, because I, I watched the movie. I heard it was terrible. It, it was awful. Well, like, I didn't yeah. even read the book, because sometimes I could watch a movie and then be like, okay, that was a good movie, and then read the book, and I'm like, okay, I can see why people were unhappy about it, which is, by the way, my favorite way to do things, because if you read the book first and then watch a movie, you will always be disappointed, but if you do it in reverse, you typically enjoy the movie. And then you read the book. Well, uh, like um, Ready Player One. That's a that's a that's prime a great example. example. That is a prime example. Fantastic example. Here we go. Yul Brenner's killer robot character in Westworld movie in 1973 is physically identical to Chris. That's awesome. Movie. During filming, Yul Brenner remarked that Eli Wallach was too benevolent as Calvera. <laughs> that's interesting. This is the first in the original series of four Magnificent Seven movies. According to the making of documentary from the special edition DVD, associate producer Lou Morheim bought the rights to the screenplay for $250. In 2014 money, that is equivalent to less than $8,000. Wow. Yeah. The bandit's chief's name, Calvera, resembles Calavera, the Spanish word for skull. Okay. That's cool. Oh, here we go. Clark Gable, Stuart Granger, Glenn Ford, and Anthony... Franciosa was considered for roles in the movie. Okay. In the original script, as in Seven Samurai 1954, the farmers leave the village to hire mercenaries. This was changed to appease the Mexican censors who didn't want their country to appear weak or oppressed. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see that censor happening. Right. The first scene shot was uh, the first part of the six gunfighters' journey to the Mexican village prior to Chico being brought into the group. It is a misconception that Brad Dexter got his role in the film due to saving Frank Sinatra from drowning and the fact Sinatra then used his influence with John Sturgis to get the role for Dexter. The Magnificent Seven was made in 1960s. The episode involving Dexter saving Sinatra took place in 1964. So there you go. It's four years. That is an interesting rumor that I've never heard about. But wow, (laughs) what a rumor. Like, yeah. I mean, like, okay, so did he actually save Sinatra? I think he did, but it okay. happened four years after the yeah, film that, was even released. Which is an interesting fact in general, but how it like somehow snowballed into, yeah, yeah, after he saved him, he totally used in his influence to get the part to, in this yeah, movie. Which, it's amazing when you look into Sinatra's background and uh, and how much influence that dude had and how many connections. I mean, he... He was two steps away from a made man. I mean, he probably, he probably could have got him the part in 1960 if he would have just said something, you know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. 
1984, producer Walter Mirisch announced a remake of the film as part of his production deal with Universal. Walter Hill was slated to direct, and Hill hoped for Robert Duvall to play the role of Chris. However, the poor performance of Hill's Streets of Fire in 1984 at the U.S. box office led to the Universal Brass canceling the project. Hmm. So... There, there. Then again, that shows you that if it doesn't do well at the theaters, they're not going to back you for another movie. Yeah. Among the seven actors who played the Magnificent Seven, two of them were not American-born. Horst Buchholz was from Germany, and Yul Brynner was from Russia. So, despite some cast, uh, some credit listings, Nadevad Vasio plays Miguel, not Thomas, and John A. Alazenzo, billed as John Alonzo, plays Thomas, not Miguel. <laughs> so they <then laughs> messed up. Amazingly, the iconic and enduring score for this film did not win the Oscar for Best Original Score. Instead, it was won by Ernest Gold for Exodus. Hmm. Exodus. I, I feel like um, I know it's a, a, a pretty acclaimed movie, Exodus. Uh, I, don't I don't think, think I've seen, seen it. Yeah. I don't think I have either. In Robert Vaughn's 2008 memoir, he confessed that the cast all had diarrhea while filming. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they must have drank the Mexican water. Uh, Someone must have told or no, no one must have told them that you're not supposed to. <laughs> Montezuma's Revenge. Um, set reporter Erskine Johnson was convinced that Eli Wallach would upstage the other members of the cast, especially Yul Brenner, and saw him as a threat to their fame and popularity. According to the DVD notes, both John Ireland and Sterling Hayden were approached for the role of Brit. Here we go. Here's George Pappard again. George Peppard, or Peppard, was originally considered for the role of Vin played by Steve McQueen. Peppard later went on to play Colonel John Hannibal Smith in the TV series The A-Team in 1983, the pilot episode of which was a modern-day retelling of this story. Later episodes also retold the story in varying ways, and in fact, part of the premise of the series was based on this film. Huh. Because they always went around yeah. and helped people in need. So, so uh, on the whole, sort of... Um Either actors being offered a role and then the actor turning it down, or uh, just you know directors having certain actors in mind and it didn't pan out. Either which way, um, I think it would be interesting in like some of our bonus content to just go over some big notable roles uh, and actors that turned down those roles. Oh yeah, that'd definitely. be really fun. Three members of the seven: James Coburn. Uh, Brad Dexter and Horst Bullshots died less than four months after one another. Coburn on November 18, 2002. Dexter on December 12, 2002. Followed by Bushholtz on March 3, 2003. Wow. Yeah. The script was often written at night for the shooting the next morning. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, wow, talk about editing. The steam locomotive seen simmering in the background during the knife and gun contest is narrow gauge three foot Ferro Carol Entrocanio de Mexico, Interoceanic Railway of Mexico, G023, Class 2 8 0, number 67, built by the American Locomotive Company, ALCO. In September, or in September 1899, with builder number 5210, which operated on a line between Mexico City and Cautla. Cuyautla, something like that. Uh, it's C-U-A-U-T-L-A, if anybody would like to pronounce that. Uh, operating until at least 1967. That line was standard gauged in 1973. The engine survives initially as a display at the Monument to the Revolution in Mexico City and now at the Museo de los Ferrocarrilos in the old La Villa station north of Mexico City. Wow. Like I said, I was going to butcher some names throughout this, so bear <laughs> with me, and I'm sorry. You're all good. Eli Wallach and Robert Vaughn's characters are both killed in this film. Spoiler alert if you yeah. haven't seen this. In real life, however, Wallach and Vaughn were the last surviving members of the main cast. Wallach, born in 1915, is a fine example of irony, for although he played the villain and was older than all the other leads, Brad Dexter was the oldest, born in 1917, and the others were born in 1920. 1921, 1928, 1930, 1932, and Horst Bushholz, the youngest, was born in 1933. He outlived them all except for Vaughn. Wow. I mean, I was actually curious about that with hearing how they passed away uh, so close to each other. Like, what were their age differences? And not too too vast at all. They were all kind of the same, uh, really close. O'Reilly, Charles Bronson, who uh, is the last of the seven to die, O'Reilly's counterpart in Seven Samurai in 1954, Hihachi Hayashida, 
How'd I do? Pretty yeah. good. Is the first of the seven to be killed. So basically their roles flipped in yeah. the deaths. John Sturges faced a major problem during filming. The screenplay mentioned which of the seven died, but in no order. The battle was not choreographed, and without being clear as to how. So Sturgis came up with the idea to kill off the dying members of the seven in order that they had been cast, which went as follows. Lee, which was Robert Vaughn, then Harry Luck, Brad Dexter, Bernardo O'Reilly by Charles Ronson, and Brett James Coburn. Vaughn originally lobbied against dying first because the character was especially created for him. So Sturgis came up with a new solution, and the final death sequence, which appears on film, went as follows. Harry Luck, Dexter, is shot while riding back into the town to join the seven who were holed up in the cantina. Lee Vaughn is shot after killing three bandits who were holding several villagers prisoner in a farmhouse. Britt, who is played by Coburn, is shot in the chest as he prepares to throw his knife at O'Reilly. Um, or Sorry, as he prepares to throw his knife. And O'Reilly, Bronson, is wounded several times before this, but finally dies after being shot in the stomach while pushing the children to safety. Yeah, it's... Uh it's it's a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, of emotions too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you get to know these characters and sort of their ambitions and uh, uh, and you know who they are in the build up to this sort of epic finale. The body count in this movie, fifty five. Oh wow! <laughs> so, uh, it's never clearly shown just how many people each member of the seven killed. However, if one were to look at clear cases on of on screen killing, Vince Steve McQueen has the most, while Harry. Brad Dexter has only one kill. Uh, there's something you can brag about. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the old Britter was probably like, nah, I kill a lot more than just orange <laughs> show. Uh, Eli Wallach had a hand in how Calvera's death would be played out. Make it simple, he thought. Just go, relax, and then let it hit him. Don't focus, just stare and let your head roll to one side. Sturgis liked the idea. Ironically, though, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen's characters didn't die in the film. In real life, they were the first two among the Magnificent Seven, seven actors to pass away. McQueen died in 1980, while Yul Brenner died in 1985. Wow. Robert Vaughn's character was the last among the seven to be introduced into the film. Coincidentally, in real life, he was the last one among the seven actors who played the original Magnificent Seven to pass away. Hmm. Yeah, so once again, really interesting... Right. I mean, just, you know, just how they were first shown last to die, last to die, you know, in the movie exactly, first. Exactly, yeah. Although James Colburn and Charles Bronson's are not among the three surviving gunfighters in the film, they are two of only three prison camp escapees in John Sturgis's next film, The Great Escape, in 1963. John Layton, a.k.a. Willie the Tunnel King, is the third. Outline of a pack of cigarettes and a possibly Zippo lighter can be seen in Yul Brynner's shirt pockets. Hmm. When Bernardo pulls out or pulls one of the village boys onto his lap to spank him for calling the adult villagers cowards, the beard, the, the beard, the bed <laughs> appears to collapse beneath him. <laughs> Which reminds me of a story. When I was younger, I always got in trouble, and I had bunk beds. I mean, my sister shared a room, and she had a bed across the room, and I was getting in trouble all the time. And I remember one time my sister got in some trouble, and I was on the top bunk, and I was overlooking. My dad came in. And, I was like, oh, she's going to get it. She's going to get it. I was yeah. kind of excited because yeah. I, you know. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I remember him bending over and he, he went up to give her a spanking right and the bed broke. And they just started <laughs> laughing. And that was it. And I went, really? I waited this entire time and she doesn't even get in trouble. Man. Uh, let's see. Calvera refers to his 40 men after the three scouts have been killed. During the first shooter, at least, um, at least 13 are seen to have been killed with a further 24, including Calvera, during the final battle. Steve McQueen, who played Vin, was the first of the Magnificent Seven to have died. By coincidence, the actor who played his counterpart, Shishishurajo, played by Daisuke Kato, was the first of the Seven Samurai to pass. Both Vin and um, that guy, Shishurajo. I'd have to to actually see this one. I want you to see what... Chichirujo. Yeah. Wait, oh, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me see <laughs> you try to get I, I, I think I might have butchered it, too. Uh, let's see. Chichiroji. Chichiroji. All Shichiroji. right, there we go. Uh, both survive uh, the movies. Although Eli Wallach never got to play the Toshiro Mufun counterpart, his character Calvera was still killed in a similar manner to Kikichiro. Steve McQueen is wearing a wedding ring throughout the movie. Huh. <laughs> I, I, I didn't notice that. 
When Calvera and his gang first ride into town in the beginning of the movie, they are seen taking chickens and food. When they ride out of town, they do not have any of the loot with them. Huh. Some terrible bandits. <laughs> <laughs> when Chris and Vin begin driving the hearse up to Boot Hill, they pass the Belmore, Belmar Hotel sign twice. Once silently at the very start, and then again as they briefly discuss the towns they've come from a few moments later. Hmm. The first man Calvary kills near the beginning of the movie when uh, has no wounds on his back after being shot and falling to the ground. When the villagers re- run to the body to look at the man, there are two wounds on the back. This is the first thing I noticed in this movie. Uh, Calvary shoots him. He's like, stupid, stupid. Yeah. You know, he shoots him, and he's like, oh, and he falls to the ground. I was like, well, there's no blood or exit wounds. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then when they come to drag his body, you see two red yeah. holes where they went through. Just before the first confrontation with Calvera, Chris removes the loop holding his six-gun in his holster. Twice. Hmm. After Britt Brit throws the knife into the, cowboy, uh, into the cowboy in the rail yard, two train engineers are seen leaning out of the engine's window observing the scene. In the next shot, one of the engineers has moved to the platform between the engine and the tender car. Huh. That's pretty funny. Speaking of um, sort of like uh, on-scene blunders... Um I have completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> I had I had the thought on the tip of my tongue, and then it just just disappeared. I'm so tired, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> In the opening scene, Calvera wipes his wet hands on his vest, and it becomes wet. In the following scenes, his vest is completely dry. I think it goes back to that Mexican censorship. You know what I mean? Where yeah. they wanted him to have the clean. Yeah. Uh, in the opening scene, when Calvera is complaining about religion, he takes the cup to drink in his left hand. As he sits at the table and finishes complaining, the cup switches to his right hand. <laughs> so many inconsistencies. But I like how I like how movies do that, though. Even Star Wars has some with the blue oh, yeah. scene and all that, you know. Uh, just before Vin walks away from the craps table in the bar, the cowboy at the end of the table rolls the dice. In the very next shot, the same cowboy is shown throwing the dice again without having tagline or without having uh, retrieved them. Huh. This film also had some great taglines. One of them was, once you've met them, you'll never forget them. <laughs> Another awesome. one, uh, and as you heard in the trailer, the song that they uh, they were seven, though they and they fought like 700. Yep. That, and that's uh, a, that's a, that's something nice else, I really line. wanted to find this and I couldn't find it anywhere, but it was the wages for the film. Because I wanted to see the difference between Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen just to see if that was part of the pettiness. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it... It is so hard to find out how much people got made for movies. I, you know, yeah, it's really hard. I think we we were able to find it for uh, Wizard of Oz just because it is such a huge, huge, huge iconic movie, and the the difference in wages I think played a role in that too. That too, and and so you know, those statistics were found because that is uh, sort of an example of that issue. Uh, where in all these other movies, where some of them might be. Uh, you know, very well known. Uh, they're also not looked at to uh, show sort of controversies uh, when it comes to just you know those type of things throughout uh, time. Right. So if I can ever find them, I will put them in at the end of the show because I really like looking at that. Yeah. And, uh, see, especially like the Bruce Willis and the Sixth Sense where he, he oh, yeah. got like fourteen million up front, but yet he had that ridiculous seventeen percent of any future. You know, he made out like a a bandit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, so Terrence. Give me your thoughts on the Magnificent Seven. Magnificent Seven. So, I would say it, it's definitely a watch. Um, but I'm also saying this from you know a, a fan standpoint. Uh, I'd say even if you don't like westerns, I'd say give it a shot. At least watch you know a good chunk of the movie. Now, obviously, if you're a good way into the movie, um, and you know you don't like it, there's there's no shame in stepping away. But it, I, I definitely try to give it a shot. I, I highly enjoy it. It's a very good movie, um, and it's based off one of my all-time favorite international films, which, if you don't mind reading subtitles, which I do think they have it dubbed. I read subtitles. But um, if if you're a fan of international film, or even if you don't mind watching international films, I do recommend you watch the uh, original that movie. This this movie was based off of, which is Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, But yeah, I would give this a watch, for sure. And uh, I, I have to agree. I think that this movie is. Um, I'm not a big Western fan. Yeah, um, and I think I, that carries more. Like you saying, it's uh, uh, should watch. It right. carries more weight because and, of the fact you're not a Western fan. Um, there's only a couple Westerns I really even like. This I love Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart. Um, 
but you know my grandpa was a big uh, John Wayne fan, so I've seen some of those. And not that I really like him. I think I like the Alamo cause, just because of the sawed-off shotguns, you know, that the guy <laughs> was using. But um, like I said, I'm not a big Western fan, but just the star-studded cast to see where some of these people started. Um, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and Eagle Brenner, what an actor. I mean, the just the different roles he played, you know what I mean? And, and honestly, I did not even know that he was Ramsey's in the Ten Commandments, and I've seen that movie a lot of times. And just... Uh, like you said in one of the previous things, chameleon acting, like you don't oh, even yeah. realize, you know, and then he went on to play in The King and I, you know what I mean? And Such I didn't know that, was, I didn't know that yeah. was him either, you know what I mean? Uh, so that's why I liked in that, that biography. But yes, I think you should at least watch this movie once. If you like samurai movies, obviously the, original, out the original, yeah, uh, by Akira, Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Thank yeah. you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I say it's definitely... Uh, you know what? I would even go as far as to say as to go buy this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, to have it in your collection. It's because, not hard to find. It's not expensive. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can find it on, like, you know... Uh, but, you know, in, in, especially in today's movies, it's more about the CGI. Um, this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast, because older movies tell a story. They get you hooked. And this is a prime example of why I wanted to do this it's a, it's, a, it's a very simple premise told in a very elaborate exactly nice you, you like, fall in love with way. the characters and then you are crushed when some of them die Absolutely. you know what I mean especially like Charles Bronson when he's trying to save the kids push yep. them out of the way and get shot in the stomach you know what I mean you're like oh you know but they were trying to do the right thing yep. and I think this movie right here is showing the synopsis it, it it's portrayed in several different movies since then oh yeah you know like a group of people going to help another a group of people to stop the bad guy stealing their food whatever um you can see this uh in several movies um watership down oh yeah mm-hmm. um just then that's coming up on a special i let the bags <laughs> yeah. be, be there, but that, that'll be in the mother's day episode um they're still doing a little research on there we'll make sure it's perfect before we release it even though we're late happy mother's day belated by the belated, way exactly. Terrence's mom and my mom. Um, <laughs> um and i will throw out uh, a little tidbit i would even watch the remake of this because that was another movie i really did enjoy uh and that is once again, it's the Magnificent Seven, but I believe it was made in. It was just like 2017, yeah, I think, or 18. It was, it was fairly it was, recent. It was really what Denzel, another star-studded cast. Denzel Washington. Yes. Does the guy ever do a bad movie? I don't think so. And I think Chris Pratt is Chris in Pratt's it. in there. Yep. Chris um, Pratt, Denzel Washington, the, a handful of other The only actors. thing I would say different between the, the this movie and the remake with Denzel Washington is probably the language. Oh, yeah, um, it's course. hard to find. This is a movie that you can sit down with your family and watch. The this one we're talking about, yeah. you can sit down and watch with your family. Uh, it's a family film, even though there's some gunfighting scenes. You know, what yeah. I mean? it was a different time than today's standards. You know, you yeah, go to the course. you go to the movies or watch a movie today. It's it's about how much. Although here's uh, something that shocked grotesque me. You, that That's you can, very true. You know what I mean? Um, but this shocked me, and uh, so I, so I used to work at a video store, which is really weird saying in this day and age, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, uh, we had on Ready Player One, and it's rated PG-13. Now, I wasn't informed on the new updated, you know, what is allowed in a PG-13 movie. And uh, at the very end of Ready Player One, he drops an F-bomb. He goes, oh, blank, it's Chucky. And the first time I heard it, I was, like, busy. I was like, wait, did he see what I think he said? So once everybody left the store, I went back to that scene. I was like, sure enough, he dropped the F-bomb. I was like, wait, isn't this PG-13? What the heck? So I quickly go online and look it up. One F-bomb is allowed in PG-13 movies now. Wow. See, just different times. Yeah. Man. So it's interesting how it goes from – it kind of uh, goes on this wavelength almost because you, know, you look at – uh, first, it, can't, it won't allow anything, and then they allow some stuff, and they take the stuff away, and then they add stuff, and it's really interesting how it, it just always to, seems to change. Yeah, always. Well, let me ask you a question: why Why is it that any western, at least any western that I've seen, it's always the first thing they do is the cowboy rides into town, you know, ties his horse up, and he heads to the saloon. And they go in there and they drink. You know what I mean? That's true. It's every western that I've seen. It's true. And the, in that saloon, there's always the bad guy of the town. It's like outside high noon or whatever you know yeah, we're gonna exactly right duel to the death why is that i mean i, I, I would like to know i would an like an iconic to, thing to say hey this is a western but but what i would like to know is i don't think that that's actually how the wild west was here oh not at all so i i would like to be it would be interesting to find out why why is that portrayed that way you know what i mean why yeah. why is that always what happens 
why well, why I, I did drinking he, become such a big thing for, for yeah. the gunslingers? You know, is it because they've killed so many people in their lifetime? They're yeah. trying to ease the pain. It was sort of this romanticized outlaw lifestyle, and not only that, you when you portray a certain thing on on set for the first time, and it works, and people like it, then it sticks. So another prime example, um, I, I don't remember the movie off the top of my head, but. The pirate accent is a great example. All of that is is a Welsh accent because the very first pirate movie was played by people from uh, by by the Welsh, right? And so when people watched that movie, they really liked it. They really liked the the whole pirate theme and everything. And then so the Welsh accent was now adopted into pirate accent. So that's all it is. It's just a Welsh accent, right? Um, but, but it became a thing uh, because people really liked it. And I think that's what happened with westerns. I don't know what the uh, sort of the first westerns were, but I'm pretty sure it had some of those elements that people were like, I really like this. And then movie uh, creators were like, hey, people like this in this type of setting. Let's keep doing that. It works. Well, so since you've seen the original, and I haven't seen it in a long time, does the samurai go straight into the village and go straight to the bar? No. Exactly. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So I don't know. I'd like to find out why or how that started and became such a following as it is. So um, we're, we're coming down to the close of this. Um, we can be reached um, at the tragedy of cinema, all one word at gmail.com. Um, also, our podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play Music. Um, if you have any questions, um, if you have any reviews, if you have anything, uh, suggestions, go ahead and shoot us an email. Or some of you that know me on uh, Messenger can shoot to me on Facebook Messenger. And we um, love hearing from you guys. So oh, yeah. please feel free to send you know anything. And we, we just love reading what you guys send. And also, let me apologize. I'm, I'm going to try to go back and fix it. But um, our last episode, I tried a new thing with Levelator with... Um, putting it all together and trying to even out the sound. Um, hopefully you could tell a difference. But at the end, after I went through everything and I got everything thing and I ran it through the levelator, the uh, the closing sound, the reel, yeah. it starts <laughs> before we're even done finished. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. so we're talking over it. So I, I'm going to go back and try to fix that. I just don't want to do it and mess the episode up. You know what I yeah. mean? So I I'm going to go back and try to fix that. And I guess I just republished the uh, the podcast. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Uh, maybe I should practice on The Breakfast Club because if it disappears, <laughs> nobody yeah. cares. No, I'm kidding. Um, but since we've, we've done several heavy, heavy movies uh, the last few times, we're going to take this podcast a different direction next time and have a little fun. Oh, yeah. Um, there's so many. I mean, we were going to do Gone with the Wind. We were going to do Superman. We were going to do some of these more iconic films. But I told Terrence, I said, man, I was like, I just. We got to keep just, it light. I need to, yeah. We need to bring a family fun film, you know, that that's iconic from, you know, both of us remember. Uh, towards Very fondly. The, and the movie that we're going to be talking about is from actually 1990, the year Terrence was born. And we are going to do, just for fun. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yes. the live action, the first one, and I think it's going to be fun because it's there's a lot. Be so fun. That was one. That was a great movie when I was growing up, and I think also that there's a lot of information that I'd like to find out about that. And it's very worth rewatching because oh, you so you go back and rewatch it, and it's a movie that holds up. I yeah. mean, for a movie that has no CGI or anything, I mean, these are guys in costumes. Oh, the costumes! And I remember seeing. Uh, We'll probably talk about it more next week. But I remember seeing one of the guys without his... He had his uh, mask off to the side. Yeah. He was in costume, had his mask. And uh, the guy was doing animatronics and Mike... Like, I think it was Michelangelo. His mouth is still moving. You know what I mean? While the guy's talking <laughs> to you. So just the stuff that they did in that movie. I think it was awesome for the time. But also... I also like... Uh, back in the day, I liked the clay animation style. Like Clash of the Titans, Jason oh, the Argos. Yeah. So we're going to be doing, diving into some of that too. Um, I think a lot of those puppeteers um, and the clay and mechanics, whatever you call them, yeah. I don't think they get enough credit for what they, they oh, did, yeah, that's, especially that's back then. really tough. And I mean, you, you do get some elements of those nowadays. It's not as much. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, the Lego movie was, was done in stop motion, you know, with Legos and stop. Right. Uh, one of my favorites, though, is uh, Caroline. Have you oh, seen yeah, that? Yeah, 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 that yeah, was, yeah, that was another good movie that was used well, stop motion. Anything and, like Tim Burton does, like and the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, absolutely, and, uh, anything you know. Tim Burton. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely a skill you don't see often, uh, and it, it is over, overlooked and underappreciated in some aspects, but I, I definitely, when I see it and it's done very well, I super appreciate it. Right. I still have to see um, that... Uh, uh, Dogs Isle, or, or, or I forgot what that movie uh, was called. An Island of Dogs. or Island of Dogs, yeah, Isle of Dogs. Uh, I still have to watch that because um, that was another stop motion that looked very uh, creative 
Um, so I've been meaning to check that out. Well, um, as I said, we're coming to the close of this. Um, I'm probably going to insert the uh, Yul Brynner commercial right here. So if you hear a little pause right now, uh, I'm putting the uh, YouTube sound in there or whatever. So, Ladies and gentlemen, the late Yul Brynner. I really wanted to make a commercial when I discovered that I was that sick and my time was so limited. I wanted to make that commercial that says simply, now that I'm gone, I tell you, don't smoke. Whatever you do, just don't smoke. If I could take back that smoking, we wouldn't be talking about any cancer. I'm convinced of that. Um, well, with that being said, I think we finally come to the end of Episode 7. Look forward to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in Episode 8. Definitely rewatch it before uh, tuning into the episode. Right. <laughs> Definitely watch As it because it's so fun. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a guilty pleasure for us. You know, oh, we sure. <laughs> relive in our childhoods or my high school years or junior high years. So uh, <laughs> with that being said, I think that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut.